Welcome to Shorewords, the American Shoreline Podcast Network of Coastal Literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I talk with authors about their coastal writing or with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today is my great pleasure to talk with David Foster about his book, Meeting of Land and Sea, Nature and the Future of Martha's Vineyard. David Foster, as many of you know, was the director for a number of years of the Harvard Forest Program. And so he's bringing that knowledge of forest work to the ecology of Martha's Vineyard. After a word from our sponsors, we'll have a great conversation with David. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network, sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. So David, a meeting of land and sea, your career has been one mostly with forestry, it seems. And I think that this book really expands upon your, your views of the land, views of land uses, and views of the overall area. But tell us first about the Harvard Forest Program and the sort of guiding principles you used there that you brought to this book. Okay. And thanks very much, Leslie. It's uh, great to be here with you. Uh, The Harvard Forest. Well, yeah, I should uh, just offer a bit of correction, which is the Harvard Forest is really a ecological research institution. And that very much kind of captures my background. I actually came out of a background, uh, a very mixed background of uh, the history of religion, uh, botany, and ecology, and then ultimately more uh, weaving in geology and archaeology and the study of people through time. And that pretty well captures kind of the focus of uh, the Harvard Forest, which is a an institute of Harvard University, a separate department within the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, uh, that's located 65 miles west of Cambridge in the small, rural, and quite gorgeous town of Petersham, Massachusetts. And the program was started up in uh, 1907 with the intent of giving scientists, faculty, students, and others an opportunity to be fully immersed in a landscape where they could study nature and its interactions with natural processes and people. And so we've been conducting research along those lines 
with the idea of understanding nature and human interactions so that we can be in a good position to offer insights, advice, guidance, and join in in helping to manage and conserve um, the landscapes around the Harvard Forest and much more broadly across the Northeastern U.S. And then, so now you're looking at Martha's Vineyard under some of those same lenses. What, what made Martha's Vineyard so compelling for you? Well, after I arrived at, um, at the Harvard Forest in 1983 and uh, actually have conducted research in a fair number of different parts of the world, but in New England, we centered very much on building, a, building up a strong research program in central Massachusetts and kind of in the heart of, of New England, kind of, you know, the, the thickly forested and agriculture and settled part of interior New England. And as we started to develop more and more of an understanding and insights about the history and uh, changes in that landscape over time, we thought it would be very instructive to focus on as distinctively different a part of the New England landscape as we could find. And in particular, what drew us to the coast is that not only is it is it different ecologically and environmentally, but it supports one of the richest um, assemblage of plants and animals, so diversity of organisms, in a landscape that has been as intensively used uh, for as long a time as any other part of New England. So it's challenged by people and their use. It supports a tremendous diversity of organisms, and it's got a unique set of environments. And so it provides a wonderful contrast to um, the kind of more heavily forested interior parts of New England. And as you point out in your book, Martha's Vineyard and the coastline of Massachusetts of all New England may have been um, more modified earlier on than parts of central and interior Massachusetts. Um, you're, you're, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the coast has always attracted large numbers of people. And of course, it has received people coming from afar um, very early on. And so the interest in the coast, and actually our studies really focused on the entirety of the southern New England coast. So all of the coastline that is developed um, through glacial activity that really spreads from uh, northern Massachusetts or the Boston region down through Cape Cod, the islands of Massachusetts, and then down through Rhode Island to actually including Long Island. So our research was brought across that entire region. And then as I went to pull those studies together, I decided that focusing in on a single landmass, a single island, made the most sense. And Martha's Vineyard is the most diverse representation of all of the environments and landscapes that we studied. And so it provided a not only a, 
absolutely compelling place for me to eventually settle, but a really compelling example of nature and human interactions over time that represent what we see across the coast. But going back to your question, you know, native people settled in the greatest numbers in parts of the region where there were abundant resources and as amenable a climate and environment as possible. And so that's drawn people to um, river valleys, which of course are incredibly productive, but especially to these marginal landscapes where the resources from the ocean, the resources from the, the near coastal environments, the estuaries, the salt marshes and wetlands, and then the uplands all come together. And so Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Cape Cod, these coastal landscapes supported um, as dense Native American populations as any part of the region. And then, of course, they received some of the earliest um, arrival of Europeans and some of the earliest and some of the most intensive development and use over time of the New England region. So before reading your book, my um, knowledge of Martha's Vineyard was a little scarce and more towards the geologic conditions for it, knowing that you know there were the, the glaciers, the glacial advance, and then the retreat, the, the leaving of moraines, the outwash areas, the glaciers coming back again, plants and animals coming in, becoming fossils, coming up, coming back again and reestablishing. And then, you know, sort of I had that part of Martha's Vineyard in my head. And then we have Native Americans coming in, Europeans coming in, and then vacationers. And that kind of was my full awareness of Martha's Vineyard. And I think a lot of the people who are on the ferries coming to the vineyard for their vacation times look at it somewhat the same way. And that's even though I had a, a college friend who grew up on Martha's Vineyard. She was one of the Mayhew family. And so I knew there were established people who lived there, but it seemed like just a vacation place. And yet now I think of it as a much richer, richer history of um, foresting, agriculture, human habitations of different kinds and, and disturbances that come with the landscape from those, uh, we always think we're bettering our landscapes, whatever we do, even if it's putting up a, a mansion that's making it better in a way. But you point out all of the, the sort of long history of betterments that have been occurring on Martha's Vineyard and then point out the possibility of other ways of, of approaching land development in the future or land management in the future. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting part of your book. And just as a quick summary, could you go through some of that history and prehistory of Martha's Vineyard that I did such a shoddy job of sort of covering over as the tourist version? Well, I think if uh, the average person had anywhere near the historical background that you have, uh, we might be in a very different position here. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. A great job of, of summarizing. I mean, I think 
The reason that this is all important, and this is actually the the kind of central message of the book, and it's the the kind of central lesson that comes out of all of the research that our group at the Harvard Forest has has done and that I focus on. And that is that as we travel anywhere in, in the earth, what we're seeing is the accumulation of everything that has gone on previously as it then becomes modified and gradually fades over time with different types of activities, different types of structures having different capabilities of enduring. And so while we tend to look at and try to understand landscapes in terms of what we can measure today, the environment today, the soils today, um, the kind of terrain of today, um, it actually contains a tremendous legacy of um, plants, in some cases animals, and in many cases physical structures, either earth-derived or human-derived, that were produced in the past. And so understanding this deeper history is critical because it really is essential to understanding the present. And of course, understanding the present and the rate at which our modern landscape is changing um, is absolutely critical towards anticipating and helping to shape, to the extent we can, um, the future. So that history that you outlined is kind of, you know, uh, that's the thumbnail of Martha's Vineyard, one of the critical things to recognize is that these southern coastal landscapes were all derived from or were all created by glacial activity. And so as soon as you go north of Massachusetts and you get into the coastal landscape of Maine, for example, that landscape and that coastline is all bedrock. And it doesn't have the depth and the, the range of kind of glacially derived landforms that you have in Southern New England. So the two landscapes operate completely differently. Um, that Southern New England landscape, you know, as I say, from Long Island, technically part of New York, but part of the same kind of, of regional character, um, that landscape is all disappearing. It's all being eroded and modified by the sea and has been for the last 20,000 years since it was since it was put into place by by glaciers um, and that makes the landscape much more vulnerable than the more northern landscapes it also makes it much more dynamic in the fact that sands and coastal landforms are being moved around around the island or off the island and out into the sea and so on so understanding that context is is very important the native american history on the island is deep and extensive and um you know partially well known but it goes back at least ten thousand years it um involves um, a culture that became incredibly adept at managing change. 
the kinds of changes I've just described in terms of the size and shape and configuration of the land mass and its connection, original connection to the mainland, then its separation into an island and so on. Um, this, this culture was incredibly adept in part because it was so well attuned to and so well supported by the range of natural resources that have existed on and around the island. And one of the surprising things about that early culture is that the stories that we, or that at least I learned as a child of, oh, an agricultural society that lived off of corn and beans and squash, um, that actually really didn't arise and develop extensively until the arrival of European people. In other words, corn and beans and squash were present in New England, but they weren't a substantial part of the food source um, until just before and about the time of European settlement. And so that means that these were people who lived really off the natural bounty of the land and waters. And that gave them incredible resources, but resources that changed spatially and in abundance um, over time. And so forced them into a highly adaptive mode of life. Then of course, the European arrival led to a transformation in the land. And of course, a completely different approach towards understanding and living on the land. And it was one that was um, much more intensively active and destructive than Native American activity. Um, and it all across the Eastern seaboard involved first a widespread kind of deforestation and development of agriculture. And then a peak of that and a decline in kind of extensive agriculture as more productive agricultural lands were found in the Midwest and Western part of the United States. And so New England and Northeastern and in general, Eastern agriculture declined and became focused on a much smaller number of crops, much more intensively raised and harvested on smaller amounts of land. And all of that abandoned landscape naturally became settled and taken over by trees. And so there's this tension over time, over the last 500 years, between forested areas and open areas. And what we're surrounded by today, all across the eastern seaboard, is a landscape filled with trees that have all come back, either onto formerly cleared agricultural fields, or on landscapes where the trees were cut intensively and used as a primary resource and have been used in general much less intensively in the last 100 to 150 years. And so we're in a landscape that is recovering from intensive use and in many ways becoming more natural at the same time that the population is growing and is more intensively using the land in a very limited way for settlement and um, living as opposed to the production of food and resources. And you make an interesting point in the book as well, that you feel like an area like Martha's Vineyard, I don't know if it's special to the vineyard, but certainly that Martha's Vineyard itself could become 
significantly more self-sustaining in its food production than it is now with very little effort, just because the um, land is so conducive to agricultural productivity. Yeah, I make that that assertion, and I do that as being kind of emblematic of what is possible more broadly in Massachusetts and in other states and essentially across the New England region. I mean, we have a, a larger effort, a, a conservation-focused effort that is called wildlands and woodlands, farmlands and communities. And it is looking at all of New England and asking, how can we plan out and conserve the land in ways that allow people to thrive and nature to stay intact and thrive. And one of the ways that we do that is to think about how do we live a little, how do we live more lightly on the land, that is use less resources and impact the land less, but where we do affect the landscape and where we do use it more intensively, to do that in a very focused and a very efficient and strategic way so that we can live, leave kind of vast expanses of the landscape intact. Part of those producing resources like wood, part of that landscape then just being completely natural and allowed to thrive in a fairly wild and unaltered state. So it turns out that all of New England offers great opportunities for doing that much more than we do today. And so that's the argument that I make for Martha's Vineyard, that we would actually be better off if we tried to live in a way and at a scale that is suited to local production of the food and materials that we actually consume, rather than living much more extravagantly and importing everything from other parts of the country or other parts of the world where we have no control over or very little control over how that activity to obtain those actually is altering nature and shaping the, the, the condition of the land. And that gets into a lot of issues like carrying capacity and the idea that Martha's Vineyard, well, not the idea, Martha's Vineyard right now is very much of a tourist um, spot. It's a wonderful place to visit. And as we start to realize the great climate that it has, it's no longer just a summer place, but becoming a spring, fall, summer um, vacation area or over overseasoning area for people. And that points to a large number of people needing to be uh, taken care of. And probably also a large number of people who are not going to be contributing to that agricultural component, but for the purchase of food. So how do, how do you see that being useful or not useful? How does that work out in your mind for an island area? Granted, we want to talk about not being an island, but I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, I think I think in all of these discussions where we talk about um, living 
living in a way that is sustainable by um, producing more of our food and resources locally and adjusting our lifestyles such that they can be sustained by that level of production. I think in all those cases, we really are looking at the year-round residential population as the major focus, recognizing that, I mean, all of New England is a thriving tourist locale, with Martha's Vineyard being kind of epitomizing that. Um, And it's very true that people who come on vacation are not contributing to that production, and they are tending to be living in a way which is not conducive to or not aligned with the kind of sustainability metrics that the local residents are, because they're there for a different purpose. On the other hand, if a place like Martha's Vineyard can model better um, effective planning, um, strategic and very active land conservation, and this local population living in a way that's more commensurate with what the landscape can produce. There are powerful messages there that can be shared with visitors, shared with tourists, shared with summer residents that can then travel to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. So I think there's a lot that can be done in our own region and on our own island um, that's good for the island, but also can be shared more broadly. That's, I mean, those messages and that type of example is something that is wonderful to see. I live in California. And the sufficiency, self-sufficiency movements, food movements have changed dramatically for what I consider to be the better over the time that I've been here. You can't go a day without finding a farmer's market within 10 miles of where I live, which I find such a wonderful um, opportunity and um, a great resource to have. Yeah, no, I think we need to temper all this and certainly anyone who's anyone who listens to this and and thinks about what these landscapes and what this uh, what the activities are that are supported by tourist destinations like um, parts of coastal California or Martha's Vineyard recognizes that there's absolutely nothing sustainable about the great share of activities that many people, who arrive on the island promulgate across the island, right? The size of the houses that are being constructed are oftentimes obscene. Um, the amount of resources that are being consumed by individuals and individual families are orders of magnitude out of um, proportion to what is at all sustainable. And you know, the lifestyle that is that lends itself to, you know, jetting in for weekends and so on is such that there's there's no way that a small population, even on a um, even if it is successful at living well on a small island, can possibly hope to balance all of that. So 
I would argue that from the time of European arrival onward, very quickly, Martha's Vineyard became an unsustainable island economy that immediately became dependent on importing materials from elsewhere. And it's only gotten worse over time. So we're really fighting uh, an incredible battle and talking about uh, working to alter that, that balance. I think one of the high points that you talk about in your book, though, is how much land has been acquired for um, land conservation, put into trust, put into um, park areas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Martha's Vineyard, very much to the credit and to the spirit of the people who live here, there's always been a portion of the population that has been very forward-looking and very proactive um, in terms of in thinking about the the future of the island. And so looking down the coastline of New England and and South uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, people became alarmed by what they were seeing and what they could envision for an island like Martha's Vineyard. And so they very proactively did two things or, or took a series of actions that resulted in, in two major developments that have helped the island immensely. One was to develop an island-wide planning and regulatory apparatus, which is called the Martha's Vineyard Commission, which oversees not every individual small development and activity. Each of the individuals, each of the six individual towns has their own capacity for dealing with that, like any other small town in New England would. But it was recognized that there are some developments, some projects, some proposals, um, some suite of activities that are, that are so grand or so, um, so important in their actions that they really affect the entire island. And so they developed, they worked with the legislature to develop a island-wide regulatory and kind of enforcement and planning uh, commission. And then the second thing was to develop an island-wide conservation capacity. So in addition to the local land trusts and local conservation organizations and statewide and even national and international conservation organizations that are involved on the island, there is an island-wide Martha's Vineyard land bank that collects 2% tax on every real estate um, sale that occurs on the island and uses that to conserve land for recreation, for nature, for access, um, for beauty, and to support the environment. And so as a consequence, 40%, the way that people like to talk about it on the island looking forward, 40% of Martha's Vineyard is conserved, about 30% of it is developed land, and there's 30%, which is very much in this tension as to which direction it will go in the future. 
Yeah. And there are strong forces pushing both ways on that 30%, which will certainly tip the future of Martha's Vineyard either way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And people recognize that. In fact, there is a new organization that has just cropped up called the Land Protection Fund for Martha's Vineyard, which is yet another entity that is trying to find, tap into new audiences for land protection and therefore new resources, money and funding for land protection um, to add to this larger activity that the existing conservation organizations and this island-wide entity um, are advancing. So there is great concern about planning. There's great concern about where and how we develop. And there's tremendous concern about conserving um, those remaining big parcels and key parcels of land all across the island. So one of the books you reference or papers, I'm not sure, I think it was a book by Anne Simmon, has got a great title. And I think it's it comes in now as, as a question. The title of it is No Island is an Island. And you're talking about island issues. <laughs> and yet you're such a dominant part of the rest of the state of Massachusetts. And you've got many people from outside the island coming in to um, help. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, that is also part of this wonderful history of the island is that there are very thoughtful, very active local residents. And then there are many people who arrive on the island or who have a history of coming to the island who become deeply committed towards um, helping it not stay exactly the same, but to change in ways that are kind of consistent with its history and the unique features that occur out here. And so Anne Simon is her name, and she was one of these people who was writing in the 1970s at a time when all of a sudden, even though there was this forward-looking group that was anticipating uh, major challenges to the island, all of a sudden there were a number of significant proposals for for major developments across the island. And so Anne wrote about that with a very clear and passionate set of, uh, passionately put uh, set of uh, arguments for where the island should be going and how it should be conserved, um, and very much opposed to the scale of development and the type of development that worked completely in opposition to the history and natural flow of, of the island. And so it was, a, it was a very important book. It was a book that was championed by people like President Kennedy and his, and his brother, um, who was both of whom were involved in, in promoting major legislation that um, helped to conserve the, the coastal landscape of New England. 
And how much of the land that is in some sort of protective mode provides access to the beaches is shoreline property, which allows for public use and access. Do you have any idea? Um, I actually don't know as a percentage. Um, There's, you know, Massachusetts is peculiar in the fact that all the shoreline down to the water's edge um, can be owned by the landowner. And so to actually get good public access, you either have to buy the land, own the land, or buy or gain an easement to that access. And so that is a big focus of all the conservation organizations and especially of this Martha's Vineyard Land Trust. And access in general, both to the coastline, to freshwater ponds, and then just town to town and across individual towns is very much at the at the kind of forefront um, so that people can uh, enjoy the entire landscape. So what's happened is that there are conservation lands that are acquired by the state. There are lands that are owned by each of the individual towns, and then many lands that are owned by these various conservation organizations that do give access all around the island, but it's very much interrupted by big stretches that are privately owned and and dominated. And I have to ask, what has happened to the Shifter House since 2017 when your book was published? Um, I think that their name, and it should recognize the land that they live upon too, that it is shifting just as they are shifters. Maybe I'm mispronouncing their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Yeah, well, that. so j- just to provide a bit of context, so that is at the southeastern corner of of Martha's Vineyard, and it actually is on the island of Chappaquiddick, which which can be connected to the main island of Martha's Vineyard by a barrier beach. But that barrier beach can become disrupted um, in major coastal storms. And when that happens, um, Chappaquiddick, the southern coast of Chappaquiddick, and especially the corners of the southern coast, become extremely vulnerable to erosion. And overnight, the rate of erosion can increase a hundredfold um, in those locations, such that you can lose, you know, feet or tens of feet of, of land, you know, in a couple of days under the right conditions and with, with storms continuing. And so that's what happened to this shifter house. The, the house location was approved by the local planning board with an understanding that 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 it would be set well back from the coast with that distance being set relative to what had happened in the previous 30 or 40 years, which was relatively modest erosion. But what they didn't do was to consider really kind of a deeper history and People had been studying this coastline since the late 1700s. And so there were very good records showing that every once in a while, when that barrier beach breaks, the landscape transforms overnight and you get a rate of erosion that's not been experienced in the last three or four or five decades. And so that's exactly what happened. And suddenly this this 
incredibly large house, which was well set back from the coast, was suddenly getting closer and closer to the coast, such that it was ultimately right at the coastline. So it was picked up and moved, not just to the back of that property, but the family ended up buying the adjoining property, moved a house there so that they had more room to set their house back. So right now the barrier uh, beach is, uh, is reestablished. The erosion rate is relatively modest and the house is very secure. Um, it's not as far back as it was when it was originally built. And the next time the barrier beach breaks, um, there will be relentless erosion that'll go right back up towards that house and eventually will take all of that land away. And then with the property laws providing for private ownership down to the mean low tide line, that also may mean a lot more armoring of the shoreline, or is that not allowed in Massachusetts? There are local, state, and federal oversight of that, and so it is allowed in some locations. It has it's never never proven to be successful along the south coast of the island because the erosion is so great. I mean, this is a landscape which even under the best of conditions is receding three or four feet a year. And so um, various things have been proposed in the past and a few things have been tried, but really there's no way to permanently arm the southern coast. There are There is armament going on elsewhere around the coast, but by and large, the, the bodies that provide oversight over, over this are not terribly supportive. And most of the, oh, many of the organizations involved um, are much more inclined to um, let nature operate um, freely recognizing that anything you do to protect one part of the shoreline just tends to exacerbate conditions on other parts of this adjoining shoreline. That's the case everywhere you put in shoreline armoring. We're seeing it around the world. But So what do you see as your um, ideal future for Martha's Vineyard? You come back in 50 years. You're still there in 50 years. How do you want to see it? What do you? What's that? What's that perfect Martha's Vineyard for the vacationers like me who still want to be going there too? Yeah, well, I think I think what I would like to see is a kind of great acceleration of what is going on right now, which is increasing pace of conservation such that there is a framework of conserved lands that covers something like 60 plus percent of the island and that the planning that is unfolding really has taken to heart um, both the direct impacts of development on the land and their, their indirect consequences in terms of groundwater pollution and so on, but also is thinking in terms of this future of climate change so that we actually can support a thriving set of very distinctively different communities that are interfacing well with nature, which is conserved intact. 
and that that nature is a combination of very managed landscapes like farm landscapes that are supporting the local population, um, some woodlands that are supporting and providing natural resources, and great expanses of land that are just kept intact and allowed to develop naturally. Hopefully, if that kind of a landscape is still here, then it will be very much a landscape that you and others will love to continue to visit. Great. I hope to keep visiting it. It was my first time there, and um, I'm not going back this year, but hope to be back again in years to come. And as I go back, perhaps you could tell me, what's your favorite beach? It doesn't have to be on Martha's Vineyard, but interested in if you have a beach that you frequent and like to go to that you'll share with the audience. Oh, I've got lots of beaches. And of course, like <laughs> anybody else who who really loves Martha's Vineyard, vineyard you, I'm not inclined to share all my favorite places with, with everyone, but... <laughs> My book opens up with a scene from Lucy Vincent Beach, which is one of the best known, if not the best known beaches and one of the most picturesque and most heavily photographed beaches on Martha's Vineyard because it is right at this interface between these big morainal hills and the outwash plain. And so there's tremendous erosion and dynamics there as well as absolutely gorgeous beaches. Uh, that's probably our favorite beach to walk because the environments are so diverse. Every time you go there, it's a different beach and the scenes are different. And there are just so many different, wonderful, natural, and occasionally human artifacts to uncover. And if I remember correctly, that beach is open to the public except for the height of the summer. So maybe I will see you there in some spring or fall visit that I have, am lucky enough to make. Yes. That's right. And are there writers who have inspired you in your, your book? And what are you doing next? I've got so many other questions to keep asking now. Oh, gosh. I've, I've, I've been inspired by so, so many authors um that's let me let me deflect from that for for a second um you know i'm i'm fascinated by a movement that is growing internationally that is very much part of the inherent story of of the new england landscape which is which goes under the common phrase of rewilding so what happens, there was a wonderful book written about 10 years ago called The World Without Us. And it imagined, it imagined a world in which all humans had, had died off. And what would our landscapes look like if we just let them go? And that's essentially what has happened to much of the New England landscape in kind of broad terms. I mean, people still keep managing a lot of the land, but so much 
of the land that was intensively in agriculture has been allowed to rewild. And with that has come just this most remarkable array of natural scenes, native plants, and native animals. And so that has become a worldwide direction in conservation within circles in almost every country in the, in the globe or every part of the globe. And so I think there's some very, very interesting stories to be found within that, that movement and within those processes. So it's been wonderful talking with you, David. Um, any parting words for our audience? Well, only the obvious, which is that anything that pertains to thinking about living, planning, conserving, sustaining one place like Martha's Vineyard is just as true every other place on the globe. And so all these lessons, all these thoughts that we exchange from one place pertain elsewhere, and we should all be trying to advance them. Great words. Thank you so much. I've so enjoyed talking with you. I so enjoyed reading your book as well, A Medium of Land and Sea. David Foster, it's been great speaking with you today. And I'd like to thank everyone else for listening to this episode of Shore Words. I hope this time with David Foster has been both educational and inspirational, and that it encourages you to look differently at your favorite locations, enjoy your favorite beaches. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Shore Words, consider being a sponsor. We certainly support and are greatly thankful for anyone providing contributions and support for Shore Words, for ASPN in general, and for the Coastal News today. Till next time, enjoy the coast and your favorite views of the shore.